0: The vast majority of it was going to pay for the insertions. It was about impressing the people in Washington rather than the people on the streets of Baghdad. I think there's plenty of evidence that the
1: military did it. Off I went with two suitcases and some bedsheets and a couple of pots and pans. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Dyson House Podcast, where it's my job to chat to the experts who can help us delve into real issues in international affairs and how you can get involved in the fields that will change the world. I'm your host, Peter Bateman. We're brought to you by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. On this episode, I'm joined by Professor Ian Howie. If you've ever thought about a career in the United Nations, he's the guy to talk to. Ian's been associated with the UN for almost 40 years now. He details his rise to the ranks from humble beginnings, piloting a project in Bangladesh to the global head of UN human resources in New York. He's lived in Asia, the South Pacific and Africa, taking on projects that have made a difference to millions of lives around the world. We discuss what it's like being a part of a community of people that come from over 193 countries and how those with hopes of landing a job with the UN can achieve their dream in 2018. It's a wide-ranging, insightful conversation full of tips, so make sure to take notes. Please enjoy the United Nations How to Get In with Professor Ian Howie. Peter Bateman here with my guest, Professor Ian Howie, who's kindly hosted us in his office here at RMIT in Melbourne. Delighted to be talking to you and looking forward to our conversation. Yes, me too. So thank you very much for coming on the Dyson House podcast. You've got around about 30 years or more, experience working with the UN, is that correct?
0: Yes, it is uh, 30 years. In fact, I've been associated uh, with the UN really all my adult life, which, you know, after university is
1: 40 years. Yeah, that's exactly why I've got you in today. And It seems to be a lot of people's dream to work for the UN. Why do you think that is? Well...
0: I can understand that it is their dream, um, simply from my own perspective, because it was my dream as well back in the uh, 1970s. The UN is attractive as an organisation to work for uh, simply because of its reputation, of its kudos, the fact that it's a uh, multilateral, multinational organisation, the fact that it has moral integrity, irrespective of what you think about it and that the fact that it appeals to the aspirations, the humanitarian aspirations of young and old, and particularly if you've studied anywhere really in the social sciences, but with a particular interest in development, international relations, politics, government, modern history, then inevitably you see the UN as a possible way forward for your ambitions your studies your interests are a conduit to potential employment with an international organization and when you look at those the un ranks highly but of course you could equally have an international career in the banking industry or in the mining industry or in the security industry or in the australian government in one of its many departments not least of which Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trades. There's plenty of outlets for people wanting to pursue an international career, but the UN is uh, particularly seen as an aspiration that someone like me coming out of uh, university and I'm sure your colleagues coming out of university would aspire to join. And do you think it's... It sounds like you do, but do you think it's always been that way? Well, the UN has had moments when it was thought of more highly in the minds of the international community and other moments uh, when uh, it was not so well regarded. I mean, if you look at the UN after the San Francisco Conference of 1945, throughout the 50s and the 60s, it was very much uh, highly regarded. And bear in mind, when we talk about the UN, we're not just talking about the United Nations, situated in that iconic building on the East River in New York, where the General Assembly is located, the Security Council, the peacekeeping operations and so on. We're also talking about the funds, the agencies, the specialised agencies and the programmes. So here we're talking about amongst the programmes, the UN Development Programme, the funds, UNICEF, the UN Population Fund, the specialised agencies most of which are located in European capitals, and some of which date back from the League of Nations and earlier, such as the International Labour Organisation, UNESCO, the World Health Organisation, the Industrial Development Organisation, the World Food Programme, the Food and Agricultural Programme, World Tourism. There's a whole multitude of these specialised agencies. So when you're looking for international careers, you need to cast your net broadly not just the UN in New York, but through those
1: funds, agencies and programs. It seems like you got into this kind of work quite early in your career. Can you walk us through that journey and how you got into the UN initially? Sure. Well, like any job that we manage
0: to secure, it's a combination of timing, of luck, perhaps of contacts, perhaps you have already had an association with the organisation you wish to join, uh, and perhaps uh, because you may perform well in interviews in a competitive basis. In my case, it was really a combination of timing, luck, and an ambition to want to work for the UN. So I went to Melbourne University and the Sydney University. I made a choice after I finished at Sydney that I really wanted to work in the area of development. How do you do that? I, you know, I really didn't know. But, you know, I applied for a number uh, of positions, including which was to go as a volunteer with Australian Volunteers International, which is operating today. It's located in Fitzroy. And over the years since the 1950s, has sent hundreds, thousands of Australians to work in the area of development. So I went as a volunteer Initially to Fiji, and from Fiji, after my term had expired there, I applied for and joined the staff of a minister in the Papua New Guinean government. And how I joined the UN is simply explained by the fact that there was an international conference in Port Moresby, I'd written a speech for my minister. He was unable to deliver that speech, so I had to read my own speech. There were delegates at that conference from throughout Asia and the Pacific, and at the morning tea break, a representative of the International Labour Organization, the ILO, out of its regional office in Bangkok, came and asked me if I would be interested in piloting a project in rural Bangladesh. I said yes. I was keen. I was, it was a dream come true. I knew about the ILO. At that time, I didn't know it was part of the UN, I might say. And I had concerns about the integrity of the minister I was working for. And so I leapt at this opportunity. I'd never been to Bangladesh. I knew very little about Bangladesh. And only later did I discover they couldn't get anybody else to go there. But that's how my UN career started. In 1976, a one-year contract with the possibility of extension subject to performance and finance. So I started on a one-year contract and 2012, how many years later, uh, I was still
1: working for the UN. Can you talk a little bit more about what that was like when you were sort of going through the ranks, going to different projects? What is it like to, to work for the UN?
0: Well, I've indicated that when you start, it's an uncertain beginning. You have a short-term contract. There are many factors at work, most of which you're not really aware of. But the UN system in the area of technical cooperation, which covers the bulk of staff who work for the UN, is working on projects that are linked to and approved by governments. And so the continuation of your employment depends in very large measure on your relationship with the government. So you have counterparts from the government who are appointed to work with you and whom you have to train so that they will take over. Whatever you're endeavoring to do will become self-sustaining. So after Bangladesh, where I was initially on a project and then that project was expanded from its pilot basis to cover larger areas of Bangladesh. After uh, four years in Bangladesh, I was asked to pilot a similar effort in Sri Lanka, but now covering not just the rural sector, but the industrial sector, and also, although rural, the plantation sector in Sri Lanka, which I did. Then I was transferred to Kenya now i no longer have a sole project i no longer have multiple projects but i'm given responsibility for a sector and i then have other international staff who were like me you know some years earlier responsible for a project or multiple project but they're answerable to me uh, on a sector and then uh, following kenya i was appointed as a country director so now I'm responsible for our entire program made up of many sectors and projects. And I've become a UN representative in Ghana. Following Ghana, I had successive appointments in Vietnam and then in China. And in China, not only was I responsible for our largest program globally, many millions of dollars, but also being China one of our most controversial given human rights issues, but I was also responsible for North Korea and Mongolia. From there, I was transferred to UN headquarters, so now I've got global responsibilities. So, I mean, this is a bureaucracy which has steps within it, have the opportunity to advance uh, through the hierarchy,
1: and that was basically the trajectory that my career took. And I've often wondered about the sense of accomplishment you get in these sorts of roles. Every job, you should feel accomplished to some degree if you're enjoying it. But how is it different from, say, a regular job? You mentioned you can work in the international field and the mining and the banking sector and things like that. But how is it different working for somewhere like the UN? In the UN, of course, you're not
0: working for a profit-making sector. You're basic motivation is to how can this program of assistance that we are providing to a particular country benefit primarily the poor and essentially how can what we're doing improve the life of a poor marginalized woman. Now of course there is also the humanitarian work of the UN, the crisis work of the UN, which is covered by the World Food Programme or the High Commission for Refugees, which are dealing with international crises. But the work the other agencies do are typically five-year programmes of assistance, the aims of which are to improve the lives of the poor and the marginalised, and how best you can do that. So this is clearly very different to that mining company or the national self-interest if you're on a government program. You're there as a UN agency to support the efforts of a country to deal with its development issues. So you know whether it's um, work in agriculture, or in irrigation, uh, whether it's in the health sector and endeavouring to do something about high incidence of maternal mortality. Or, well, we have the World Tourism Organisation, you know. For example, I spent many years, many months, I should say, in the latter part of my career in Rwanda, there in Central Africa. And there, the World Tourism Office was advising the Rwandan government on how best to approach tourism to look at gorillas. So there's a multiplicity of work to be done across many sectors, and you're there not for personal self-interest, not for company self-interest, but the self-interest of the rural poor, essentially, and increasingly this century for the urban poor, because the bulk of the world population now is urban-based. If you look, for example, when I was in Nairobi, I was working in both the big slums of Nairobi, the Mathara Valley and Kibera. Now, I think Kibera is, in fact, the biggest slum in the world. So we're down in that slum trying to figure out how we can get clean drinking water, what we can do in terms of malaria eradication, what we can do in terms of primary health care, how can we ensure that women can give birth safely, what do we do about teenage pregnancy what do we do about drug issues these are issues that affect the people in slums anywhere and that's where the UN is based that's what they're trying to do
1: I guess this is a good segue talking about the sort of situations that you have to deal with what are some of the realities of the job that people maybe don't realize the less glamorous parts of the job that don't always fit the sort of romanticized version of the UN that's an excellent question It is a
0: romanticised vision, and I had it myself. But there are realities that have to be faced, particularly if you're going to have a long-term career in the UN system, not a short-term one. So let's begin. If you're in a relationship, can your partner find a job? If so, can they pursue their career? Now, in many countries, an accompanying spouse, which is the UN jargon for your partner, are unable to work. They can't get a work visa. So therein is the first problem. What do they do? Are they content to do voluntary work? Are they content to join an international group with morning teas, golf, diplomatic functions? If they're uh, children, young children, is that a full-time career, helping the children settle into school and so on, that they want to pursue? But if you have a two-career family, how do you navigate that? Do you agree to go to a country where he is employed and then the next time you travel, she is fully employed and he becomes the accompanying spouse? That's immediately a big issue that you have to work out. Also, the mere movement from country, four years in a country, five years in a country, whatever it might be, to another country brings its own strains. You've got to pack up. You've got to relocate. Now, in the UN system, unlike, say, the Australian Diplomatic Corps, in the UN system, you're completely responsible for yourself. There's no house for you when you arrive in the capital city. There's no embassy that's made all the arrangements months beforehand. There may be a UN office, but they're covering many organisations and personnel. So when you arrive in a new country, you've got to find a house. You're given uh, one month's accommodation and you're given a monetary allowance. So how you spend that, where you stay, where you choose to live is completely your affair. And then uh, where your children go to school, that's all up to you. And if you're piloting a project like I was, you have to find an office, you have to get the furniture, you have to do everything from scratch. And so, I mean, that produces its own challenge. Then, of course, as your children start to move from primary school and when they're at first one of the advantages is you're often in depending the country you're in but you're able to employ domestic staff you can get a nanny to look after your children when they're young your children go to international schools now again the un is not like the diplomatic corps you're not living in some well you can choose to if you wish but i never chose to live in some isolated plush suburb near a country club. I chose to live with my national colleagues and work with my national colleagues and travel with them and to be very much integrated into the local society. But, yes, our children went to international schools. When they get to teenage years, they don't always want to change schools. They're happy, well-settled, the best friends they'll ever have in their life in that school, and then you come home and say, well, we're moving in six months' time. To another country, I can assure you they're not happy about that. And that brings challenges. But, of course, our children now, uh, who we, you know, we made the decision, which was a good one, even though they were never born in Australia, to send them to Melbourne to university, and to, which they've all uh, successfully done and navigated university and life in Melbourne where they live. But they have friends all over the world and they're regularly Skyping Them and talking to them. One of the other challenges, of course, in the latter part of your careers, you have aging parents and you're constantly travelling back and forth to be with your parents, and you're very much dependent on your brothers and sisters in the care of your aging parents. So there are personal issues throughout your career that really have to be taken care of. Now, in the UN, you're not necessarily living in. European capitals or in New York, for example, if you look at myself, you know, Bangladesh, Nairobi, Accra, Kigali, Hanoi, Beijing, you know, some of these countries are tough countries. There are coups that happen, there's health issues, you're living in situations where you could be robbed. <laughs> what about all of those? And, you know, at this part and
1: parcel of an international career. And on a lighter note, then, what are some of the best moments, then? What's the reason you put up with all that?
0: Well, they're your words, put up with all that. Uh, I I never obviously saw it that way, but they're things that happened. I, I think the best part of it all is partly answered with respect to my daughter and her friends that she has from school or all around the world. You make extraordinary close friendships. You're part of a community from, potentially, from any one of the 193 countries that make up the UN. You have friends and colleagues from all around the world. You're also working towards the betterment of humankind. Now, that can be challenging, it can be frustrating, but you're trying to make a difference you're making a contribution, so that makes it worthwhile. Of course, the longer you are in the organisation, even though it's a global organisation, at a time you come to feel you know everybody. You're also, in a sense, changing jobs every four or five years. It's not as if you're commuting from the suburbs of Melbourne into the central business district, for however long you might be in that job. So for myself... I always relished the opportunity not to be a tourist, not to be a traveller, but to engage myself, to absorb myself in the culture of the countries I was in. It was a wonderful opportunity to get to know a whole diversity of countries, of peoples, of cultures, to explore that and be challenged by it.
1: For the people who want to have that same experience, they want to live all around the world, immerse themselves in cultures, be a part of real change in the world. What is the situation like for them in 2018? To put it bluntly, how do you get into the UN? Is
0: it any different
1: now than 1976
0: when I joined? I suspect that it may not be. Well, first of all, you've got to dare to take the risk. And you might want to follow the path that I did. You go as a volunteer. My experience says to me that if you're working in, shall we say, a developing country, and of course there are definitions of what constitutes a developing country, then your chances of an international career are possibly greater than applying directly from here in Melbourne. Partly because you're getting experience of development issues. Partly you're knowing what it is to work in a multicultural, multinational situation. And partly because you're linking up with people who work for international organisations. So whether it's an NGO like Oxfam, Mari Stopes International Plan, Australia World Vision, CARE, whatever it might be, you're mixing with those people and you're finding out Uh, about opportunities. You also start to mix with people who are working in the aid sections. So the aid section of DFAT, differed if it's the British or the European Union or the Japanese aid program or the Swedish program or USAID, Canadian, you're mixing with those people. You start to get a feel for it, you start to make friendships, you start to uh, see where there are opportunities, and you start to build up your expertise. And then, of course, you start applying. You hear about things, you meet people, you socialise with them on a Friday night, or you play, you jog with them, or whatever it might be, and you hear about opportunities. So, you know, I've acted as referee for many students, and I've I'm still in touch with many of my colleagues and I've been able to place interns in Hanoi in Vietnam, uh, in Dhaka, uh, in Bangladesh, in Suva in Fiji and in all those cases they've managed just like I did to get short term contracts with different agencies and they're on their way. Now whether they choose it as a lifestyle or it's a short term thing, well time will tell.
1: And in terms of skills, what should people be pursuing right now? If you're, say, for example, just graduated high school, how can you best position yourself in the next five years to be in with a shot to get one of those short-term programs or an internship or something like that?
0: If you're just out of high school,
1: clearly university
0: is your next step. Whilst you're at university, you might want to join the Australian Institute of International Affairs You might want to join the UN Youth, the UN Young Professionals Program. You might want to volunteer with Red Cross. You might want to volunteer with Oxfam. And of course, at university, you might want to pursue your studies in international relations, modern history, whatever it might be. And then, of course, in the university holidays, you might want to go and work for three months in a developing country. There are plenty of programs where you can go and volunteer to work on a short-term project to get a feel for it. You know, I have students that are off to Malawi to help, you know, work on a construction at a primary school. Your next step would be, because this is mandatory for a job with the UN, you'd have to have a master's degree. So you're not going to get in the UN without a master's degree. You also might want to start thinking a language to support your candidature if you're looking to the UN. Now the UN has six official languages, English, French, Spanish, Russian, Arabic and Mandarin Chinese. So if you're competing for a vacancy in the UN, you're competing with Europeans who not only speak two of those languages, they speak probably three, you're speaking, you're competing with the Africans who for sure will speak two of those With the Latinos and South Americans, who will speak two of them, certainly Spanish and English. So if you're going into the UN at the primary step as a young master's graduate, you will be expected to speak two of those languages. If you're going in at a later point, say after 10 years of experience with a CV that complements the area that the UN is looking for, then the language requirement is not so strict. So you get a job after university volunteering somewhere or you're able to get employment. It could be with one of the 200 mining companies working in West Africa, 200 Australian mining companies in West Africa. Or you join the ANZ Bank and you go and work in Hanoi or you get a job with a government department and you get a posting somewhere. Then you're getting an idea and you're starting to look around, and you might wish to work in a not for profit, an organisation like the UN. So it would seem to me your chances are better. Now, of course, that's not to say applying online from Melbourne you may also be successful. That happens. And that's not to say that if you go and knock on the door of The UN building in New York, during the Northern Hemisphere summer holidays, when 80% of the staff are on leave and they're looking for short-term help, you can pick up an internship. Now, I know people who have done that, whether it's in New York or in Geneva or, or say, with UNESCO in Paris. 80% of the staff are all holidaying in the Mediterranean. So June, July and August, they
1: need people. So, if you speak
0: French, there's an opportunity.
1: And so they literally just went to the UN or the UNESCO and. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
0: And go online. I have a one page handout that I give to students that lists all the sites for all the agencies, the funds, and the programs that you can go online and have a look. And bear in mind there are many UN agencies, many. You know, at least 40. So you can confine yourself. For example, if you're studying law or criminology, what about the UN Office of Drugs and Crime? UNODC, there's a possibility. If you're doing environmental studies, there's Habitat and the UN UN Environment Programme, which is headquartered in Nairobi. There's a possibility. So cast your net far and wide, and you may have to make 70 applications.
1: But the 71st might succeed. Be prepared. And you did kind of touch on this, but I kind of want to ask more specifically, why should people want to work for organisations like the UN?
0: In a sense, I think I've answered that in your opening question. The UN, despite its many failings, and it does has failings, and uh, throughout the latter part of my career, I was part of an effort to reform the development role of the UN. But the fact remains that UN does constitute humankind's best effort to make the world a better place, and you can make a contribution, however great or however small it is, and that can be a source of satisfaction to you, that you've given it a shot to improve the lot of humankind. Now, how best to do that takes time and experience, and it's a challenge, but... I think it's really worth the effort, and that's absolutely uh, been my experience. So despite some of the trials and the tribulations, I would suggest uh, it's a very worthy career to pursue. That's been my
1: experience. Professor Ian Howey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. As always, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show or give us a like or comment on whatever podcast platform you use or even share us with your friends. You can currently follow us on Twitter at Dyson House, that's D-Y-A-S-O-N House. And remember to check in every Thursday night for new episodes. If you live in Melbourne, be sure to check out the AAA Victoria's website at internationalaffairs.org.au forward slash Victoria where you can sign on to become a member and get discounted events and access to our academic journal, as well as seeing upcoming speaking events at Dyson House. June's getting pretty busy, so come check out all the great events we've got, including last week's guest, Richard Iron, who'll be speaking to Emma Sky on Iraq in retrospect. Next week, we have former Washington correspondent, a former foreign correspondent, and political reporter, Michael Brissenden, on why politics is so fun to cover and why you should be interested. Till then, I'm Peter Bateman. Thanks for listening.